The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. So reading from Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 1 and then verses 6 through 10. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. God said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I add my welcome to Wills. My name is Chad Middlebrooks. I'm one of the other pastors here on staff, and it is great to be opening God's word together this morning with you. Uh, if you're visiting, we are in a series in Deuteronomy, and specifically uh, in the last couple of weeks, in a study of the Ten Commandments that we began last Sunday. And as we have noted, God graciously redeems Israel out of slavery in Egypt before he provides them with his law for them to live by. And so Israel's to see these commands that we're studying this morning as a gift from God who is showing his people how life is to be lived under his perfect authority as they prepare to enter into the promised land. Last week we looked at the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And the first commandment tells us who we are to worship. As God demands every creature give exclusive wholehearted worship to him alone because he's the only one who is worthy of worship. And so as we come to the second commandment this morning, you might find it to be quite similar to the first but whereas the first commandment tells us who we are to worship the second commandment tells us how we are to worship God rightly and you see these commands are given in the negative but as one of our elder has noted that you can actually write these in the positive and so for example the first commandment God says I brought you out of slavery in Egypt I will be all you will ever need offering you provision protection, purpose, and fulfillment. And in the second commandment, as we look this morning, it could also be written as, I have told you how I desire to be worshipped. Now take great delight in me as I have asked. But the problem is, because of our sinfulness, what this command reveals is that worshipping God in the way that he dictates, rather than the way we desire to worship him, is quite challenging. But as we'll see this morning, thankfully, there's great hope for lawbreakers like you and me. So let's pray, and then we will look at this command. Father, each one of us has walked into this place with various needs. And while our needs may differ and vary from one another, 
We ultimately know that our greatest need is to have a Savior that could cover our sin so that we might be reconciled to God. And you are the remedy, the only remedy for our problem and our need. And so, Father, we need your help this morning to have our hearts turned away from the distractions of this day and of this week to you and you alone. So, Father, would you help me as we look at this text? Might I decrease so that you, Christ, might increase? I would come, tend to your word by the power of your spirit that we might be transformed and changed by it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in 1969, Edward Packard, who was making up bedtime stories for his children, wrote the book Sugarland Island. And it was the prototype for the classic Choose Your Own Adventure series. Some of you may remember that from years ago. The Choose Your Own Adventure series stories, they offered a very unique format for the reader, in which the reader, after a brief introduction to the story, assumes the role as protagonists. They're the main figure in the story, the main character, and they get to be the star of the story and choose how the story unfolds to its ending. And when you're in third and fourth grade and you're reading these books, it's, it's incredibly awesome to know that you have the power and the control to know how the future is going to end. But you're also quite shocked to realize that the story that you choose has consequences. And so based on what you choose could lead to reward or it could lead to death. And moreover, it's disconcerting to realize that you don't have all the information that you really need to make a confident decision as you go through the storyline. And in many ways, our struggle with the second commandment, not to create images or idols, manifests itself in the same way that what's at the heart of the Choose Your Own Adventure series. The allure of control and power. And I love what Andy Crouch says. He says, I think so rightly, about idols. He says, every idol is an attempt to gain an edge on the world, to have some leverage over chaos. And just like the Choose Your Own Adventure series where the reader is in the driver's seat controlling how the story unfolds, we can seek to do the same thing, attempting to control how we view and how we worship the living God. But God, as our creator, the only true God is the one who dictates worship. Ever since the fall of mankind in the garden, our image bearing is broken in the sense that we no longer create to the glory of God by nature. And because of our sin, there's this distortion of worship as we attempt to make ourselves something that will bring ourselves glory rather than the God who created us. And so each time we take something that God has created and we make it ultimate and we make it into an idol, we're seeking our own glory and trying to bring some semblance of control in our lives, thinking it's going to help us navigate the uncertainties and the complexities and chaos of life. But as we've all experienced, that never goes well. Because that which is broken... Us can't fix brokenness. But thankfully, which is why God has created a better way to live. And so in order to show us how to rightly worship him, God has given us graciously this command that provides us with at least three things, as we'll see this morning. It provides us with a necessary corrective, as we'll see in verse 8, a sobering warning in verse 9, and then finally an encouraging promise 
in verse 10. So in verse 8, God says, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So what this command says is it not only forbids the making of false gods, but it also forbids making an image of the one true God, Jesus, Yahweh. The language of here of, of heaven above, earth beneath, and the water under the earth is Moses' way of saying to the people of God as they prepare to enter into this land, this prohibition is all-encompassing, covering all of creation. Man is not to make images to represent God in any way, shape, or form, period. So for Israel, they were surrounded by nations who worshipped their gods through idols. The pagan nations carved and they cast images of earthly material in the form of earthly things that they could pray to and bow down to and to sacrifice to in hopes that they might earn favor to the gods in which these idols represented. And these gods that Israel was surrounded by, they looked, they were things that their eyes could see. They looked like the sun or the moon or the, the birds or beasts or animals of various kinds. And so even if the Israelites were able to uphold the first commandment and to keep Yahweh as their one true God, they were still tempted with the second commandment, even to make an image of Yahweh. Which is why God not only gave them the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, but then follow the first commandment with the second one, you shall have no idols. We learn in Exodus 32 how God's people fell into this temptation with the incident of the golden calf. If you remember the story, after the Exodus, Aaron proclaimed a feast to Yahweh and they fashioned this golden calf to represent God. They brought the God who brought them out of slavery under Pharaoh's dictatorship. And his intention was for the people of God to worship the true God by way of this golden calf. He was creating a new way to worship God through an image of God. And here's the reality, as it was with the golden calf or anything else. Any image of God, whether made in sincerity or even out of ignorance is always going to be incomplete and lacking and ultimately misrepresenting who God really is. An image of God is really no God at all because the creator is being substituted for the creation itself, which is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 1 when he speaks about the people and saying that they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. And if we remember going back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses warned the people. He told them in verse 12, he says, Don't fall to worshiping the idols that you see others doing around you. You're different. God has spoken directly to you. As if to say to them, why would you turn from these very personal and direct words that God has given to you to an, an object that is not living, And it can't speak to you. It doesn't make sense. But to some degree, can you blame the Israelites? I mean, everywhere they looked, they saw idols and images that they could see with their eyes, that they could touch with their hands, representing these various gods. And if we're honest, 
it's rather challenging to worship the God of the Bible by simply hearing and believing by faith. Instead of imagining in our minds or assuming what we think or want God to be like. See, we're tactile beings. We love to be able to see and touch and taste and smell. But we can't see God. We can't touch him. We have to believe by hearing and seeing through the eyes of faith. And so therefore, because of this difficulty, we can often look to the created thing to try to represent what God is like. Or even using our own imaginations to invent a God that we would be willing to submit to. We imagine a God who's a lot like us and who wants what we want and who wants to make us happy. And even though the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, tells us that God is a spirit, he doesn't have a body like we do, we want to make God into something relatable, something understandable, something even portable, as it were. But as Tim Keller notes, any physical picture or image that you and I make to represent God is always going to conceal more than it actually will reveal. We diminish the full nature of the character of God as we focus on some attribute or characteristic of his nature to the expense of others. And what I mean by that is take, for example, our prayer life. Think about how much we pray for the aspects of God that we desire to see evidenced in our lives. Praying for God's compassion, his mercy, his protection in our lives, his provision, his his comfort. But how often do we pray for God to bring his disciplining hand, his justice into our lives, that it might grow us in holiness? Probably not too often, if ever. Or think about the ways that we just assume that God's plans and his timings are gonna, timing is going to look like ours. See, an attempt to craft a version of God that we're willing to submit our lives to, what we're doing is we're actually substituting the sovereign God who is willing and purposely intentional in allowing trials and sufferings in our lives. We're substituting that God, the true God, for a God that is merely worried about our present comforts and our happiness. And we've all probably heard it said, and maybe it's come out of our own mouth before, we use the phrase, well, I think God is like, fill in the blank. Or to me, God is X. When we utter those words, we're breaking the second commandment because we can't dictate what God is like. Only he can. But so often, we try to put a filter on God by adding or subtracting parts of God that we don't think fit into our perception of what we want God to be like. In an effort to gain control of our lives and to to bring glory to ourselves, we seek to leverage God to work for the things that we care about. And we try to put God in a position where he's serving us rather than the other way around and we are serving him. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, uh, Screw Tape, who's a, a senior demon who is mentoring his protege, his nephew Wormwood, on how to undermine God's truth and how to derail the faith of the Christian. Screw Tape says this regarding idols to his nephew Wormwood. He says, I have known cases where what the patient called his God 
was actually located up and to the left at the corner of the bedroom ceiling or inside of his own head or in a crucifix on the wall. But whatever the nature of the composite object is, you must keep him praying to it, to the object that he has made, rather than to the person who has made him. Now it's fairly unlikely that any of us have statues or images in our homes, but this command is asking us to go much deeper than the externals, right to the heart, to evaluate how we view and worship God. What are your perceptions of the living God this morning? How do you relate to Him? How might we be perceiving God in inaccurate ways? See, our view of God will determine how we worship Him and how we surrender our lives to Him. For some of us, maybe you're viewing God like a a kind, gentle grandfather who gives you anything and everything you want and who kind of turns a blind eye to your sin overlooks your mistakes and your failures just kind of pats you on the back and says it's you're doing great and if we have this kind of view of God then we're likely going to have to minimize our view of sin and we're likely it's going to result in having little to no true repentance over our sin because we think that God glosses over it. Or maybe you're exhausted right now, mentally, physically, spiritually. But perhaps this is because you've fashioned a God that is distorted from what he's really like. And so you think that God is this taskmaster, this tyrant who is never pleased with you and constantly pointing out where you're going wrong and that you can never do anything to earn his love and his affection. So you're exhausted. Or maybe you have an inaccurate view of what God's goodness looks like. Believing that God just really wants to punish you at every turn. That he's just out to get you and make your life miserable. But if we believe that God is like any of these or other things that we make that are inaccurate from what God, who God really is, then we are creating a false image of God. Breaking this commandment. And because our hearts are idol-making factories, as we heard last week, we must continually remind ourselves that God has revealed what He is like in His Word and through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's not for us to try to make the invisible God visible. That's not our job. That's way above our pay grade. Why is God so concerned with idol-making? Well, next we see that this command gives us a sobering warning. Notice in verse 9, God says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so we see here that God is a jealous lover. He has set his unconditional love upon Israel, his treasured possession. And so he is personally and deeply invested in the lives of his people and therefore very jealous for them. Now, we use the word jealousy. Often, we kind of use it in the negative light as to say that someone is acting insecurely or needy or envious or greedy. But this is a relationship here in the context is referring to a relationship between a husband and a wife where jealousy is appropriate because there's a covenant relationship. And so God's jealousy doesn't reveal any kind of deficiency or neediness in himself. 
It's actually to the contrary because jealousy is not a flaw in God. It's actually a perfection in God. And I love what J.I. Packer, he defines God's jealousy. He says this, it's his praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. That's God's zeal for his people. We're his prized, treasured possession. And so he is zealous for us. And his jealousy is actually driven more to our need as he's committed himself to his people out of deep and abiding love for them. Now imagine if when I got home at the end of the day, I went over to the wedding picture of my wife and I on our wedding day and I started talking to Jessica in that picture and relating to her and picking it up and hugging that frame and and talking to her and she kind of came over and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm expressing my devotion and my love to you. You think she's going to accept that excuse? No, because I'm not loving and engaging her for who she really is in reality. It's just an image. And think of the indignation she would have if this is the way I try to relate to my wife. I think of how exponentially greater God feels, not because of his feelings being hurt, but because as the creator, he has shown us how we are to worship him. Not through an image that we make, but in the way that he's revealed himself. But it's clear here that God is not against all images, and we need to understand that. Because he's given us an image of himself in Jesus. The writer of Paul writes in Colossians 1, he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God is saying to us in this commandment, worship me for who I really am and how I've revealed myself. It's precisely because he delights in his bride, the church, that he is so jealous and zealous for her. See, this command actually protects us. It protects our covenant relationship with the God who has made us his own. God is a jealous lover who doesn't want our hearts to be given to anything else. He will not share his glory with another. But although he's a jealous lover, he's also a judge who is perfectly just. And though it can be difficult for us to see it this way, his judgment and being just as he is and his love are not incongruent with one another. What does God mean when he says that he will visit the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generations? What he doesn't mean is that he's going to be handing out generational curses. Nor does it mean that the righteous child will be spiritually cursed for the sins of his wicked father. And why do I say that and how do we know that? Because Ezekiel goes on to say in Ezekiel 18 that the son shall not suffer the iniquity of the father. But here's something we can't mistake. The ripple effects of sin and its consequences can impact and flow down to future generations. God is warning that judgment will come to those who walk in the wicked ways of their fathers, their grandfathers, and their great-grandfathers. He's referring to future generations who continue in their sin and their rebellion against God. The children share in the father's punishment because they share in the father's sins and wickedness. Now, parents, we can't ensure the future of our children's path, can we? As much as we wish we could. We make our lives and theirs a whole lot easier. 
But my, as a parent, my obedience as a father doesn't mean immediate blessing for my children any more than my disobedience means immediate curses and punishment for my children. But what does this sobering and gracious warning do for us? What it should do for us as parents and as grandparents is that we should realize the impact and the opportunity that we have in the lives of our children and our grandchildren. Because to some degree, the way that we view God and worship Him will impact how our children view and worship the living God. Our kids, they learn and they adopt the things that they see us doing or hear us saying from our mouths. And so our role as parents is to point our children to God's word to show them what God is really like. To counteract what they're hearing and seeing in culture or even making up in their own imaginations. And so we're to pursue holiness and intimacy with Jesus in our lives so that we make righteousness seem a more fulfilling path to travel down than the path of wickedness and folly. And so I ask us as parents and grandparents, are we setting forth a direction for our family that will either make it harder or easier for our children to know the true and living God. God cares deeply that his children see him rightly. And so should we as parents for our children. Lastly, in order to show how to rightly worship God, this command also provides us an encouraging promise in verse 10. On the heels of this warning, God says, He will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's this very clear contrast of God's response to those who rebel and despise him over against those who love him and who keep his commandments. And we learn in this promise that God is, not also, is also not a lover. He's also a lover and a judge, but he's also one who blesses. His mercy is immense as his grace triumphs over judgment exponentially. From talking about third and fourth generations to thousands and as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, 2, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God is far more eager to extend his grace and his mercy than to bring punishment and judgment. And there's no greater way that God has displayed his grace than through the sending of Christ to redeem sinners like you and I. Jesus fulfills this command because he embodies the command perfectly. He is God in the flesh. Therefore, it is good and right for us to worship the image that God has given to us in His Son. And when we submit to Christ and we look to Him alone, we are fulfilling the requirement of this commandment in worshiping God in the way that He desires and has designed for us to worship Him. Think about Jesus' earthly ministry. He reveals how we are to worship the Father in the right way. Jesus didn't come to this earth and serve a God of his own imagination and say, well, this is how I think it needs to happen. I'll carry out my own plan. And he didn't give in to the worship of a partial image of God that Satan was trying to allure and tempt him with in the wilderness either. Jesus didn't take the easy way out or the easy road to reign over all the kingdoms of this earth. Christ claimed victory and is enthroned now at the right hand of the Father 
because his obedience led him to the cross. And his undeterred commitment to worshiping the one true God in spirit and in truth led him to his death. But the father, because of the son's obedience, accepted his worship and his work. And so therefore, what led to death by the cross ultimately led to resurrection and ascension to his rightful throne by the father. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, he said, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Only as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit and guided by the truth of God's Word will we worship the Father in spirit and in truth through faith in Jesus Christ, just as He desires. See, Christianity is a faith of hearing, not of seeing. An incredible reality and miracle of the incarnation is that for 30 plus years, Jesus was on this earth relating to his people. And faith became sight for that period of time. And as followers of Jesus, the glorious promise and hope that we cling to is that one day our faith will too be sight as we are face to face with the living God. But while we await that day, We grow in faith by hearing the word of God and allowing the spirit to let us rest in these gospel truths. One of the Choose Your Own Adventure books was named Inside UFO 5440. And it revolved around this search for paradise that no one could actually attain. And one of the pages in the book described the player, the reader, finding the paradise and living happily ever after. But here's the only problem. No matter what choice you made in the story, you could never get to that page. I thought that was pretty wrong for a children's author. But such is the case for us, is it not? In our desire for paradise in the presence of the God who made us. As we wonder, how do we get there? How can I embrace this story and these truths and find this kind of ending? How can I have this kind of confidence And this kind of comfort, it seems so impossible, just like reaching paradise, UFO 5440. And the scriptures are very clear, they're very honest and realistic about this. We can't hold these strands ourselves, it's not part of our job description. We weren't meant to do this. Our responsibility is to take our rightful place in the right story. Which means that we throw away our own script And that we're no longer the main character of the story. But we relinquish and renounce that to the Lord Jesus who is. And our role, our privilege, our way to embrace this story is to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might give ourselves to him wholeheartedly. To the one who gave himself for us. That we might worship him in spirit and in truth rightly. See, God's glory cannot be captured by any image that we could come up with. We don't need an image or an icon because we worship the icon who is living in heaven now and who will one day return. And when we break the second commandment, we're undercutting the full majesty of the incarnation. And not to mention the seven billion other image bearers that God has placed on this earth. If we want to know God, 
Stop looking to your imagination or the thing that you can create. Look to the one who has given himself through his son. And may we delight and revere the name of the Lord and worship him alone, just as he's prescribed in his word, so that we might see the revealed Savior. So that he might receive the glory and the honor that's due his name. Because this second commandment, along with all the other commandments, are meant to drive us to the person of Jesus. To drive us to the one in whose image we are being transformed into more and more every day as we relinquish our hands in control. And experiencing true freedom and true life the way that he has designed. Let's pray. Father, we asked, knowing that we have broken this commandment, We ask that you would bring conviction of sin in our hearts. That we would not rest on an image that we've created in our own minds of what we want you to be. But that we would rest in the glorious image of your son who came, who died, and who was raised again. Father, we long to be in fellowship and communion face to face with you. But while we wait, may we see you rightly as your spirit causes us to know and grow in fuller understanding of who you are and how you relate to us. May we extend and offer our worship rightly to you through the Lord Jesus Christ, our great Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.